Welcome sleuths, suspects, and witnesses. We are here on day 20 of our mystery madcap adventure. Started out being the mystery of the missing manuscript. We found the manuscript, but now we have a dead author laying in the middle of the floor. Actually, he's not in the middle of the floor anymore. I think the coroner came and took him away. We made sure it got cleaned up, don't you worry. Good, because you know that stuff stinks after a while. Okay, here we go. Um, just a reminder for the new people in the room, I do try to keep to a schedule. I will do my very best to get you out of here um, in the next hour. Um, but, you know, with a mystery, you never know how the time clock is going to tick. So we will do our best, but I make no promises. Tonight, we have two fantabulous authors reading for you. Gabriel Miro is going to be reading from his poetry collection called Dark and Theatrical. And R.L. Fink, her name really is Ruby because she's a friend and we get to call her that. Ruby is going to be reading from her book for younger readers called Troubles with Teamwork, which is super, super fun. So tonight we're going to start out. Gabriel, if you would please, um, do you have a, a, a a camera you're using tonight so that we can see the, the cover of your book please yep. please so if you could turn on your because i don't see your camera yet it's on there's two he's we got oh him. you're please there sir. twice that i'm gonna <laughs> i was like what are you doing here there we go okay so thanks gabriel hold it up just a little bit more gabe yay dark and theatrical um this is a collection of poetry Gabriel, you've got about eight minutes or so. When you are ready, please take the microphone and read aloud. All right, this one is called Disappear. There is a thought that often slips into my mind, dark, theatrical, and unbidden. If I were to disappear, would anybody really notice? Would they even care? It seems that the people with which I surround myself care for me only when I serve a purpose. Too many hungry hands outstretched desperate to take anything and everything they can. My once sturdy foundation is cracked, has weathered too many storms, suffered a lack of maintenance for far too long. One day it will collapse and I can't help but wonder who will care? Who will be there to sift through the rubble and help build me back up? Is my only reason for existing to be helpful to others? Am I forever doomed to give but never to receive anything in kind? What would happen if I stopped? Would there be anything exceptional about me then? Would I have anyone to care even in the slightest? Would I be cast aside like a childhood toy long outgrown? These thoughts reverberate in my head eternally, often blocking out other thoughts. What is wrong with me that no one can care about me for me and not what I can do for them? They say it's better to give than to receive, and I agree wholeheartedly, but how long can I give without getting anything back? How much of me can I give until there is simply nothing left? In the end, will I be the one to deal with the devastating blow or will someone else? Or deal, sorry. If my walls were thicker, would I be better suited to weather the storm? I can't hide these inner demons with a smile and a carefree attitude. Secretly, I wonder what it would be like to lift the veil and reveal these hidden inner machinations to let people see the damage they do when they use me as a means to their own end. I can't help but wonder, though, it's not my fault. If I didn't offer so much so readily and without recompense, would I even be in this position now? Would I ever have to question everyone's intentions and their heart's true motives? I believed in myself more, believed that I'm worthy of more, would that make it so? Am I my own worst enemy? Would having a white knight make a difference if I didn't believe that I'm worthy of having it? The next one is called Roses for June Lois. All my life, you've been this monolithic figure, strong, steadfast, invincible. You are the glue that has held this family together through all the fights and ended affairs, 
Whenever we needed a rock to lean upon, you have been there to make it all better, offering to help as much as possible. You took each dilemma in your stride, making it look so effortless. You made us believe that we could too. Nothing could keep you down. Nothing could break you. As kids, we loved to test your will and your patience, reveling in making you mad enough to scream because we knew at the end of the day that you'd love us come hell or high water. As the years have passed, you've gotten smaller. You move more slowly, you sleep a lot more. The strength that you've wielded so effortlessly for decades has begun to wane. New, fragile you is hard to observe, seeing how as much as you fought, even you can't stop the hands of time. You've resigned yourself to your ultimate fate and lost your unwavering control. But if there's one thing that you've taught us, it's that perseverance is not a choice, but a necessity. Anything can be overcome with an iron will. Someday, perhaps soon, perhaps not, you'll have gone on your final great journey and our hearts and lives will be monumentally less. But your memory will spur us all on to honor your spirit and fight to carry on. Be strong. I don't know how we'll carry on without you, for you've steered yourself onto us eternally, but even the coldest winter could not stop our memories of you. And in the spring, when the flowers bloom, I'll plant roses for June Lois a truly remarkable, incomparable woman. Next one is called Reflection. Person I see reflected in the mirror is not a man with whom, I'm, I, no, sorry, with whom I am acquainted. I gaze upon him with the privileged detachment of a stranger, dissecting and cataloging each imperfection. The overly long nose, the droopy eyes, the barely concealed double chin, the one crooked tooth and high forehead, the livid patches of eczema marring my otherwise milky skin. Most of all, the saggy, bloated tummy that never ceases to disenchant. I can bestow so much love on everyone else, yet me, myself, starve, waiting for someone to show me the unconditional love I've never experienced firsthand. This insalubrious trait, a cancer, masticating my self-esteem with each bite. Mere bones persist, a remnant from more jovial times. Can I truly love another until I've mastered this exigent endeavor? Can I believe that I'm worthy of such love if I don't have a salient affection for myself? Is it wrong to learn to love oneself through the act of loving another? Is this perfect symbiosis or a prelude to codependency? Will I master this craft in time to savor my days or will I languish in purgatory? destined to be eternally dispirited. Must all my opinions of myself be dependent upon the approval of others who view themselves with much more benevolence than those with which I gaze upon myself? I have no answers. My only recourse is the same hope that gets me through each day. The aspiration that I will one day love myself just as leniently as I love the others here and now. That I may be blessed with an abundance of amorousness for all. The last one is called Unfinished. My body is an abandoned mansion on a hill, overlooked, neglected, blurred image in the background. I am not well-maintained. There's no one to do the upkeep. Then my walls lie memories of happiness, sadness, anger, and betrayal. Ghosts wander around aimlessly, lost forever in purgatory. We forsaken souls linger, yearning for absolution or acknowledgement. If anyone cares enough to tackle this fixer-upper, I could be shining again, solid again, habitable again. I may be broken, no longer new and pristine, but I still have something beautiful to give. Yeah. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Nice. Those were great choices to read from that collection. Um, for those of you interested, and um, Gabriel, hold your book up again so that we can see the cover. It's called Dark and Theatrical. It has this really cool um, 
theatrical mask on the front cover. Very fun. Thank you, Gabe, for Thank your you. really heartfelt reading. That I love listening to you read aloud. I, I think there's something really cool about your tenor of your voice. Very cool. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. All righty. Next, we are going to go over to Miss Ruby Fink, and she is going to be reading for her book, Yay. Troubles with Teamwork. Hold that up for us a little bit closer. A little blurry, I'm sorry. Right in front of your face. There you go. Oh, <laughs> I know the whole there we go. I think we got it. digital background thing is tough to work with. Yeah. This um, is a really fun book. This is the series. What's the name of the series? Mickey Mickey McKinney Boy Detective. Is there you go. I always get the I forget the McKinney part. The Mickey part always sticks in my head. Um so in well keeping with our mystery theme, please, Ruby, when you are ready, take the microphone and read aloud. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Chapter four, Sam meets Berners. I figured out what Mickey Itty Bitty was nervous about the second we stepped into the science lab. As soon as I crossed the threshold, an alarm blared loudly, and a small girl, who looked as though her face and hair had been styled by several explosions, emerged from behind a counter holding a water gun and cackling loudly. Aha! Nobody move! She ordered, pointing the nozzle at us. I've got a silver soaker, and I'm not afraid to use it! Water? McPine sized asked. Water is your best defense. The girl laughed again. It was hard to see much of her. She was drowning in her lab coat and her eyes were covered by giant protective goggles, but she seemed young enough to still be in elementary school. Who said anything about water? This baby is full of my super potent stink spray. One drop and you'll smell like rotten eggs and gym socks for a week. Has anyone ever told you that you are a very strange girl, McInches asked, raising his hands in surrender. <laughs> Constantly, she chortled. Hey, she switched the nozzle's focus towards me. I said, don't move. The whole situation was absolutely ridiculous. The bite-sized boy detective and I were being held at super soaker gunpoint by some girl who looked like a cross between a troll doll and a mad scientist. I was tempted to laugh, but I didn't want to risk getting sprayed. Can everyone just calm down before this gets out of hand, I said, trying to keep a straight face. Be my guest, sighed McCoward. My partner had taken the opportunity to get behind me, so I'd get hit first. Who the heck are you? The girl glared at me suspiciously. His girlfriend? Oh, please don't say that. I shuddered at the thought. I just ate. Hey, came a protest from behind me. I ignored it. The name's Hayes, Sam Hayes. I stuck out a hand to the girl, but she didn't lower the super soaker. I'm Detective McTimid's partner. Standing right here, came another protest. Are you sure you're not standing behind me? I didn't even bother to look. The girl was a bigger threat at the moment. We're here because we've got a piece of evidence we are hoping you will analyze. Yeah. The nozzle was still pointed at my chest. What else is new? You bring me something that interrupts my work, Mr. Bull of the China Shop breaks something, and I have to waste even more of my time cleaning it up! Ah. That explained pretty much everything. I will keep an eye on him the whole time, I reassured her. The nozzle wavered. Promise? Scout's honor, I said, raising one hand. All right. The girl lowered the weapon. What do you got? I unzipped my backpack and pulled out the letters. One of our clients received these. She's kind of freaked out. The girl looked at them blankly. Okay, what do you want me to do about it? A klutz spoke up. You know, look through your microscope, do some sciencey stuff, maybe give us a clue as to who left them. Sciencey stuff? Clue? Do you have any idea how stupid you sound? The girl sputtered. I am a scientist. That's some magician who can pull your solution out of my hat like a rabbit. These, she waved the papers in our faces. These are papers of paper with, with letters glued to them. 
I can give you the paper stock type, the type of glue used, but other than that, I got nothing but to guess that whoever wrote these, she stopped to read one of the pages. Your smile is like warm haggis, she read. Yeah, like I was saying, whoever wrote these weird love letters probably doesn't want you to know who he is. Anonymous love letters? Uh-oh, the boy detective muttered. You're sure you can't get anything else, I begged. Come on, Kai's been receiving these creepy letters for the last couple days. Haggis, Kai, notes. Big Nervous was still talking to himself. Oh, this is bad. Sam, was it? Sorry, I can't even get fingerprints. The girl sounded sincerely apologetic. They've been handled by so many people, by now I'd be more likely to get a fingerprint from you or your client. McWeirdo was squirming around like he had to use the bathroom. Excuse me, girls, he said, opening the door. I, I gotta go. What's gotten into him, I asked. Eh, he's always a little weird, the girl shrugged. At least he didn't break anything this time. Just seconds after she spoke, the door McDitsy left ajar slammed shut, aided by a gust of wind. A jar of glass vials tumbled from their shelf and shattered. I am so sorry. I apologized. This, this is why I should have sprayed him when I had the chance, the girl scowled. I'll help clean up. I grabbed a broom. The girl blinked in surprise and the scowl disappeared. Hey, thanks. Usually I just get left with the mess. She yelled at him. I'm Burners, by the way. Pleased to meet ya. Burners. I shook the small hand. Do you prefer to be called that or did you just get stuck with it? Burner shrugged. Eh, a little of both. How about you? I have six brothers. I stopped then corrected myself. Five. Five brothers. My nickname was kind of included with the hand-me-down clothing and fights over food at the dinner table. Sam gave me a knowing look. My family's been living with my grandpa since my grandmother passed away. I've never had a meal that doesn't include some kind of invention malfunction at the table. I smiled. I like this girl. Keeps it interesting, at least. Burner smiled back. You have no idea. The name's McKinney. Mickey McKinney. If you have figured out who the culprit is in this little case already, then congratulations. Your mother must be very proud of you. And you should probably check the mail for the next couple days, as we will be sending you your very own junior detective's badge. But back to the story. Rule number one of the detective's handbook, always protect the client. This can be a difficult rule at the best of times, and this was clearly not one of those occasions. But I was still obligated to do what I could to ensure a happy ending for both my clients. Angus wanted Kai as his, dance for Friday's, as his date for Friday's dance. Unfortunately, his attempts, and mine by association, at courting had gone so far off the rails that Kai had hired Sam to find him and make sure that he wasn't the dangerous sociopath his ransom-styled love notes made him appear to be. The easiest solution I could think of was to alert Angus of the issue and make sure that he tried another method of wooing, perhaps writing his notes in calligraphy instead of pasted magazine letters, plus putting more work into his romantic, romantic metaphors. I considered suggesting he also send some flowers to apologize and hope that Miss Bossy Pants didn't discover I was behind this whole debacle. A revelation like that would be surely result in her most scathing, you're an idiot look to date. That seemed easy enough, right? I just had to tutor the bashful and clueless Angus McDermott onto how to ask my dream girl to Friday's dance and hope she'd say yes so both my clients could go to the ball and live happily ever after. I dialed the cell phone number Angus had given me and was relieved when the kid picked up at the first ring. Hello, Angus? Look, we're gonna have to do some damage control. Here's what I need you to do. And I'm stopping there. Yay! So much fun. <laughs> Junior detective fun. <sighs> I needed okay. a lot of tea for that because I, I practiced a lot last night and my throat is so sore. <laughs> <laughs> Never overdo it just for us. Okay, oh. can you hold up the book one more Eager time? Go home so that we can see it. That oh. is shoot. I'm sorry. Hang on. <laughs> Trouble I'm just... with I'm blur my background. There we, there we go. Trouble with teamwork. Super super fun. And this is um book two in the Mickey McKinney series, right? With more to follow. More to follow. Awesome. Yeah.
thank you so much for your super engaging read. That was a lot of fun. Yay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the time has come once again to shift our attention. If Diana can get her technology to work, shift our attention back to the mystery at hand. <clears throat> this is the case of the assassinated author. Andrew Allen Smith stole the sardonic manuscript. Then he was assassinated. Who is the culprit? Why did they do the deed? We have eight suspects in the room. Chloe Holiday, Ruby Fink, Melinda Falgo, Christopher Gare, who is our detective, not so undercover anymore, is he? Amy Kelso, Jules Nelson, Marion Wieland, and Deborah Reed. Poor Andrew Smith is gone, but not forgotten. Tonight, I believe Officer Gare has an update <laughs> on the case. What can you share with us today, Chris? Well, I did get some information. Interpol has released information to us that an internal investigation has been underway for the past three years. The royal family of Sardonia realized that copies of the history and genealogy of the royal family have been released that shouldn't have been, 12 copies to be exact. While the usual genealogical records of Sardonia are publicly available to its people, these 12 copies contained a secret that a baby girl had been born illegitimately to the king of Sardonia. She was immediately taken away for adoption in the United States. Uncovering this information would be a tremendous blemish on the Sardonian royal family and would put that child at great risk for kidnapping or assassination. In a cooperative effort with the Sardonian government, Interpol has been working to learn the identity of this child and protect her. It has been released today that the name of the child is indeed Melinda Falgo. She stands to inherit a sizable fortune and the throne if she can produce the book and stake her claim. However, we cannot release the book to her at this time, as it is a critical piece of evidence in the murder of Andrew Allen Smith. On that matter, the coroner has determined that the poison used to kill Andrew Allen Smith was sodium cyanide. The aroma of almonds that is usually associated with sodium cyanide was masked by the cinnamon that was used to make his beverage, which is why the poison was not immediately detected. The results were found while performing the standard tox screen tests. The official cause of death was a brain aneurysm as a result of the sodium cyanide poisoning. CSI has not yet finished processing all the fingerprints found at the scene. Because of this, we cannot charge a suspect in the murder of Mr. Smith at this time. Thank you, Officer Gare, for that very informative update. As president of the Friends of the Library Association, it is clear to me that this investigation has not produced the results we need to reopen the library. Every day that this drags on, we are in danger of losing our patrons and our federal grant. So, I have taken it upon myself to study the occult section of the library, and I believe I have found a way to communicate with Andrew's spirit. This may be our last chance to get him to speak to us, as I fear it's very close, he's very, very close to crossing over the threshold between the living and the dead gone forever. I feel Andrew visited me in a dream last night, and if I say the words right, we may be able to have him join us here today. Keep in mind that this is tricky stuff. According to my research, Andrew's spirit will only know what he knew <clears throat> in life. A spirit answers are usually brief, cryptic, or repetitive, and be aware the spirit is under no compulsion to answer truthfully. This spell doesn't bring him back from the dead. It only allows us to access his spirit for a short time and ask a single question. Splinter of life, take haste, take hold. Quicken the breath to awaken the soul. From cloud to sea, from crown to throne, from blood to brain, from skin to bone, 
tree of life in which we art, roots that feed from earth's deep heart, rising branches charged from sky, come now, make his death a lie. Hear these words, hear my cry. Spirit from the other side, come to me, I summon thee. Cross now the great divide. Andrew, by all the power left in you, granted by the heavens above and those below and with the love and support all, all of, thus, of all of us here in the library who appreciate your spirit, please come forth and tell us why you stole the sardonic manuscript. Make sure to unmute. It's not easy being dead. <laughs> it's challenging. Why I stole the sardonic manuscript? Please. For the oldest reason in the world, at the core of it all, which is money. But I had been working for some time with my uncle trying to find the sardonic manuscript and because I am so good as a computer programmer and hacker I was easily able to track down where it was. I traced it to the library through the the whoo it's tough being dead uh, through <laughs> through the catalog and uh, there was a copy of it that I tried to purchase at auction uh, and due to a computer error on a lesser computer, I lost the bid. But whoever had it realized it wasn't necessarily important, and I knew it was. Uh, I found the book here, the last copy that I needed, and before I could reclaim it, somebody slipped me a Mickey, and that was that. I'm feeling drawn here. Sorry. Andrew, so sorry that we are losing your spirit. Oh my gosh. He's gone, I <sighs> fear. Once again, lost to us to the ether. Melinda, it is your turn to come forward. What can you offer to help us understand this mystery more clearly? Well, I guess there is a time for truth and well, from my research before I came to the library, and then from my time with the Sardonic Manuscript, I had discovered that I am the misplaced and much maligned child of King Kaishor. You see, my mother was the queen's lady-in-waiting, and she gave me up rather than suffer life in the dungeon just for giving birth to me. I mean, after all, being the king's mistress is a treasonous offense, according to sardonic law. While I had already been trying to peel open the files of my sealed adoption, when I encountered Ruby on the street, she told me that the sardonic manuscript held in this library would give clues, such essential clues to my history but I'd only translated and confirmed the passage on page 246 before the book was stolen. Ruby and I were discussing our next steps in the cafe and we had just returned when the theft was announced and we were all dragged into the library for the inquisition. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Frozen. oh no! Which by the way, it's just been so very, I feel as though my life's meaning has been ripped from me yet again, because Detective Gare won't release the book until the murder is solved. So I can't claim my true birthright. Gosh, the sadness of the drama of it all. It's terrible. Could I point out that somebody who would steal a book from a library maybe shouldn't be princess? I'm just saying. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> See, if your library gets a donation, 
<laughs> we already did. Wait. <laughs> Ruby Fink, psychic in the house. What do you have to add to this tale? Oh, well, I mean, you know most of the story already. I've approached Melinda on the street because I had a vision. And I knew that if we could get to the sardonic manuscript, then we could find the treasure that is also included in that book. And it would have been so lovely to have all those gems, those rubies and emeralds. I mean, if I became her best friend, then she would absolutely let me have a little bit of that, obviously, because I helped her find it in the first place. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, we were um, chatting, we, able to get to the manuscript we got to two page the page 246 we were just so close we put it back on the shelf we went off to coffee i i helped her get there i i helped her with her birthright and it was right there went off to coffee and then the book was gone so now I gotta do these tarot card readings again and I gotta help the police like, find these criminals all over again and crime just doesn't pay. I'm sorry. I would so much rather have had the manuscript because I think I am a little bit of treasure. I, I really do think I would. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I wish I had killed Andrew because then I could have just followed the manuscript and found it all on my own. I wouldn't need any help that I I didn't. Oh, I didn't see that coming. I'm just a horrible, horrible psychic. <laughs> Thank you, Ruby. Um, Amy, I know yes. you were missing from the room last night. First I know of all, you have a few things to say. Please. <laughs> what are First you of all, about? I have to say that Chris Gare was saying lies about me why I wasn't there. Ugh. Again again yes but i also have to point out and i know all of you understand and know this i have been working tireless tire tirelessly i can't even talk i'm so tiredless i've been working tirelessly day and night to keep this library as a place where the written word is cherished and revered carrying on the legacy of my grandmother before me so when i saw the sardonic manuscript two years ago, it was lying on top of a plain manila folder on Jules' desk. There was a note lying on the top of the book that was handwritten. I may have peeked at it a little because, uh, you know, I had to find out what this book was. It said this book is a relic of tremendous importance. Keep it safe. Tell no one. You will be contacted with further instructions shortly, which sounded really weird and creepy to me. And I figured maybe it was just some kid playing a game, to be honest. Anyway, um, it seemed odd to me that Jules would receive such an important book and do nothing with it, just leave it sitting on her desk. So I took care of it. I looked through the book. I saw some pages were covered in a strange language, um, but I did see several pages that had like a family crest um, with chest of rubies and emeralds tumbling out of it. Hmm. I did turn a few more pages and saw what looked like a family tree, um, maps, I didn't even recognize geography. I didn't know where it was from. Of course, I couldn't read it, but it definitely looked like something to do with genealogy. Um, so that's where I put it. Um, because here's the thing. We kind of came to this point. I kind of knew, because I keep my ear out, so to speak, that Jules was looking for my replacement, which again, I really don't understand because how could anybody replace me? I don't know, <laughs> but... When I found that out, I took the book, cataloging it, of course, doing a proper things, but I kind of hid it in the genealogy section of the library, under where it belonged, but, you know, hoping no one would see it there. And, of course, be safe in the reference section, because nobody takes books out of a reference section and tries to take them home, generally speaking. Um, so I put it there, and then... I did actually put in my application to be um, to replace Jules as library director, which I'm sure is going to happen because I do mm -hmm. such a good job keeping the library in order. Um, and I figured once that happens, she'll be gone. 
uh, the library, I could then translate this book, figure out where it belongs, return it to the rightful owner. Because obviously, a book that is this important should be kept in a little library in the middle of nowhere in any town USA. It should go to its home country, be in a glass case, protected from poachers, or worse, <gasps> readers who would dog ear the pages. <gasps> I needed to keep the book safe. So I had it planned how I was going to do this. And then, of course, Melinda, who seems to have... Oh, there you are. I thought you hid from me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Melinda goes and tries to steal it. Good thing I caught her the first time. And then, of course, it actually was stolen. We couldn't find it. I was so upset. <gasps> ah, but we found it again. It is now back safe. Well, it's with Christopher for now, but it will be back safe and everything is fine. I, I am sorry that, you know, the guy died, but the book is safe, which is really what is important. So <laughs> that's what I have to tell you. It's a sad day when somebody <laughs> dies over a book, isn't it? Um, Jules, you just heard that Amy wants your job. What do you have to say about that? Well, I don't know if she could do my part of the job. There's just a lot of paperwork. There's no bossing around. You just stay in your closet. I just so, think she's better off. Oh, sounds so tough. I think I could handle that. <laughs> Did, is what Amy claims about the book being found on your desk true? Yes, what she said was true. It did come in a plain envelope and it was hand address, no post postmark, no return address. But what she doesn't know is that there were actually two notes inside the book. One that was on the top, the one that she saw, um, did assert that the book was valuable and asked the library to keep it safe. There was another one that was tucked inside the front cover. And the second one read, your reward will be beyond your imagination if you do what I ask. And there was also a name of a bank and a number written on the inside of it and a small key taped to it. So I left the book on my desk and I went to the bank and I asked about the number and they told me that it was a safe deposit box. So I produced the key and they led me to the vault and gave me the box. And I opened it. There were two small stones inside, a rough cut ruby and then an emerald, along with a note that said more will be your windfall if you keep the book safe. So I rushed out to have the stones appraised and I found out they were authentic and they were worth more than my yearly salary as library director. So I hurried back to the library to, uh, to hide the manuscript, but it had been moved from my desk. And I didn't want to draw any attention to the importance of the book, so I didn't say anything to Amy when we finally discovered that she'd shelved it in the genealogy section. It was my it was job. Yeah, I thought it was best just to hide the book in plain sight. It's been there for a while, so I figured it had been safe and nobody could check it out because it was in the reference section. I did allow Melinda back in the library to continue her research and hope that she'd be able to lead me to more answers about the book because I couldn't read it. And then after her sizable donation to the library, it would have been awkward not to let her use it. I figured she could do all the dirty work for me. The morning the book was stolen from the shelf, I received a note telling me to take the book to a drop location where a reward would be waiting. But when I went to retrieve the book from the shelf, we had discovered it was missing and that there was a thing in its place. So I, we didn't even know who took it until after Andrew Allen Smith fell to the floor. And the plot thickens. Marianne, you've been here the whole time through all of these interrogations. You've yeah. got to have something to say on the matter. What is going on with you? Well, I'll admit the cafe was just a cover, mm -hmm. although I truly do enjoy providing refreshments to the library patrons. And the bar across the street, well, we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> but it was me. I sent the sardonic manuscript to Jules for safekeeping. An officer from Interpol contacted me shortly after I bought the book at an auction a few years ago. The only reason I bid on it was because it looked like an old and interesting book. I have a cousin who is a linguistics expert and I was gonna have him translate it for me. I was hoping it was a collection of fairy tales because I really like fairy tales. 
it wasn't very expensive to win at the auction. I suppose people just didn't know what they had because I suppose people just didn't know what they had because the cover wasn't all that remarkable. Truly, I bought it on a fluke. What I really wanted was a silver tea set, but I lost that bid. I guess silver isn't as interest, silver is more interesting than musty old books to most people. Anyway, when that fellow from Interpol called and asked if I had the book, that's when I knew it was important. But I wasn't going to let it go for free. My mother didn't raise no dummy. So, because I'm a fixture at the library, I figured it'd be a good place to hide the manuscript until I could broker a better deal. So, like Jules said, hiding it in plain sight seemed to be the best choice. I'm in the library a lot, you know, helping to organize events and such, so I could easily keep an eye on it. But then Melinda and Ruby came in and started talking about the book. And then Andrew came in and tried to get me to buy his book about antiques. Well, I thought that maybe that musty old book might be worth more than I thought, more than that Interpol officer let on. I finally got Andrew to stop talking, no easy feat, and convinced him to leave. I waited a few minutes and then I told my workers that I was going on a break, but when I got to the shelf in the library, the book was gone. I saw Andrew mingling about the antique display area near the front of the lobby. And that's when Ruby and Melinda walked back into the library. Then I heard Diana, the president of the Friends of the Library Association announced the book had been stolen and she locked the library down for investigation. I've just been here ever since. Deborah, if anybody can help us get to the bottom of this mystery, it must be you, our intrepid reporter. What clues have you dug up on this crazy book and its history? Oh, well, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> the second I heard Ruby and Melinda talking about the sardonic manuscript, I kept my eyes and ears open because, you know, I'm a good reporter. And I overheard them saying words like inheritance and precious treasure and royal family. And I totally knew there was a Pulitzer Prize winning story waiting to be written, which I was going to write. And I was at the auction when Marianne won the book. And I was immediately suspicious that the book might've been worth more than she bid because the description in the catalog, it said that it was one of 12 hand copied books, just like the old medieval monks used to write. And I knew Marianne had something that she didn't understand. I mean, clearly she didn't read much because otherwise she would have known that only royal houses, churches, and seats of government produce such meticulously crafted manuscripts in an even dozen. So I connected that bit of knowledge to a set of instructions I found on the internet that included a 12-step program to make an origami horse. We all know how useful 12-step programs are. And as I was nosing around, I also got wind of the theft of the Gutenberg Bible, stolen from the same auction where an origami horse was left in its place. Because I'm such an awesome researcher, and I found out that the country of Sardonia was an ancient, tiny little country in the Mediterranean, and all the men in line of succession had one incarnation or another of the word horse in their names. So I called my contact at the police, my special liaison, Detective Gare, to tell him what I learned. He told me what he knew from his contact with Interpol, and we decided to work together, together, Christopher, together. <laughs> we'd solve the case and catch a promotion. I would write a Pulitzer Prize winning story, and we'd split the finder's fee for returning the book. So of course I recognized him right away when he came into the library, but I know how to keep secret sources secret, so I didn't blow his cover, even though he was a complete jerk to me. <laughs> and I was planning to retrieve the book when Melinda had translated it sufficiently for me to write my story, but the fiend Andrew Allen Smith beat me to it. Now he's dead, rightly so, and it looks like Christopher's trying to frame me for the murder. So much for our special liaison. Just saying. That's uh, that's that's quite a revelation. That's that's quite a Christopher. Well, you know, I've been holding it back for a long time now, and I just I had to get it out. I understand clearly. It, it's a woman scorned. Oh my gosh, watch out, um, 
Christopher, I'm sure we're going to have a lot more conversation as the days progress. Chloe, the entire time that we've been at this for the last 20 days, you have been mysteriously quiet, more so than the others in the room. What's your story, Chloe? Okay, I'm going to come clean with you guys. Um, and uh, it's interesting tonight that Ruby has been vindicated as um, uh especially page 246 having some meaning, but I am afraid that she is wrong when she says that crime doesn't pay. When I said I was in mergers and acquisitions, I failed to mention that the latter meant acquiring things that don't belong to me. So yes, I'm a thief, but I am no murderer. I've been working with an underground organization uh, called The Wire for several years. I love writing books. I am an author. I, I didn't tell any lies, um, but I do have an extravagant lifestyle here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I have a gorgeous, bright red vintage 94, uh, 95 Piper Cub, which guzzles Avgas, and a vacation home in Nantucket with hellish taxes. I subsided my writing career and my toys um, by the occasional retrieval um, for my clients, um, and in return for sizable donations for my addiction to aircraft fuel and book tours. So that's how I heard of the sardonic manuscript. The Wire website indicated that 12 copies, that of the 12 copies in existence, 11 had already been retrieved. So when I found it was coming up for auction, along with the gold Patek Philippe Henry Graves Super Complication Pocket Watch, another client required, which was valued at a cool $23 million, I hid in the crowd, lurking in the shadows. My contact there, who did not come cheap, allowed me access to the storage room right before the auction. Of course, the pocket watch was easily pocketed, but... I didn't see the sardonic manuscript. Problem is, I didn't have much time to look. There was chaos after the Gutenberg Bible uh, was stolen and an origami horse left in its place. This particular theft hit the auction house hard, not just because the Bible was valued at over four million bucks, but their computerized security system had failed. As I hung back in a dark hallway, I heard, overheard the police, Detective Gare, in fact, tell them that he was on the trail of another theft and that the quieter they kept this, the better it would serve his investigation of that other crime. He said they should pull the stolen items from the auction before anyone noticed that they were missing. Um, and of course, the auction house did not um, want it to get out that their technology was outdated and easily hacked. I recognized him the moment I saw him loitering around the library, but I kept quiet because I didn't want him to discover that I had stolen the golden pocket watch. It's good business to stay discreet. Besides, this adventure was turning out to be something that might work well in my next book. I had to see how it would end, but I never expected it would end with murder. And so ends the recap of part one of our story. We have seven days to find out who the murderer is. We have several suspects. Christopher. Chloe Holiday, Melinda Falgo. Ruby Fink, Christopher Gare, Amy Kelso, Jules Nelson, Marianne Wieland, and Deborah Reed. Each of them had a very specific interest in the sardonic manuscript. Each of them had a motive to murder Andrew Allen Smith. Now we just have to figure out who did it. Everybody come back tomorrow when we will have open interrogations once again, and everyone will be able to ask their questions of the remaining suspects. And perhaps if we're lucky, the ghost of Andrew Allen Smith will join us in the room again. 
Thank you, everybody, for playing our wacky game tonight and helping with our plot exposition. So much fun. Um, bum, bum, bum. Okay, so um, let's go on now to uh, Diana's technology not working again. There we go. Okay, um, just as a reminder, everybody, the scavenger hunt is still going on. Every day, there are two riddles that are uh, shared with everyone, and the clues for the answers to the riddles are found in the titles of the books that are read in the room every night. Again, thank you, Riddle Master Jacob Bulling, for making our scavenger hunt possible. And our dead body chalk outline, again, here are the fingerprint totals. Deborah Reed is in the lead with 149 fingerprints. Amy Kelso, 143. Andrew Allen Smith in Hall of His Happy Deadness, 141. Chloe Holiday, you are now on the chalk outline, 102 fingerprints. Keep those witnesses coming to collect even more. The fingerprint contest tonight. Look who's on the hand. Jen Rinaldi has 98. Emma Palova at 93. Marianne at 89. Ruby at 83. And we have a tie for fifth place at 82 with Christopher Gare and Mark Love. 483 witnesses have seen our wackiness so far. Um, and I anticipate that the next week is going to be unanticipatory. <laughs> okay, <laughs> here we go. The witness ledger. Uh, here's just the overview of all the witnesses who have been in the room every night. It's time to give away the nightly loot, everybody. We are giving away free books as we always do this time of the night. Um, if your name comes up on the spinning wheel of happiness, pretty please send me your mailing address to diana at pagespromotions.com and we will get those books sent out to you by March 5th. As I prepare the spinning wheel of happiness, as we like to do, I would love it if everybody could answer a really simple lightning round question. We're running low on time, so let's try to make this a true lightning round. Chloe Holiday, if you had to choose as an author, who is your spirit animal? Oh man, um, probably <laughs> probably an owl. Oh, I like owls. Jules Nelson, what about you? <laughs> an elephant. Oh, cool. Deborah Reed. Um, I don't know, cat. <laughs> Cat or Padme will be very happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, Marianne Wheeland, your spirit animal. I think a hawk or an owl. Hawk, I like that. Uh, Gabriel Miro, what about you? No, oh, you have to turn your microphone back on, dear. A cat or a chimpanzee. <laughs> You'd make a good chimpanzee. I like Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> Mandy Joe, who's your spirit animal? A cat. Lots of kitties in the room. Amy Kelso. Can I say a tree? I know it's not an animal, but you know. Yeah, okay, you can because they're alive. That works. Okay. Quiet. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes trees are pretty loud. I stand in the forest and hear them a lot. Uh, Diana Durrell, do you have a spirit animal? A dolphin. Good choice. They're smart. Jen Rinaldi. Raven. Ooh, Raven. Ruby Fink. Uh, deer. Not in headlights. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, Gary Floyd. A sloth. <laughs> <laughs> They're cute. They are. They hang around. They're super <laughs> cute. Uh, Jennifer Rains, who is your spirit animal? I'll go with Amy, a tree. Thanks for that, Amy. <laughs> See, Amy breaks the rules and we all follow her, one right after the other. Trendsetter. I'm <laughs> no, much happier with a tree, yeah. Lindsay, what about you? Who's your spirit animal? Uh, my friends say a flying squirrel. I'm going to go with a hummingbird. 
<laughs> Both are good choices. <laughs> you have interesting friends. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they debated it. They talked about it for a while before they landed on Flying Squirrel. It's not uh, inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> it's an approach. Uh, Melinda Falco, what about you? Wolf. Wolf, did you say? Mm -hmm. Nice. That's my maiden name, by the way. Uh, Christopher Gare, what about you? Who's your spirit animal? Melinda stole it. Wolf. Okay. I did not know this about you. We will have a conversation. Um, Preethi, who is your spirit animal? A peacock. Nice. I like it. Uh, Deborah Reed, who is your spirit animal? Oh, we did Deborah already. She said kitty cat. Um, Deb McPeak. A snail. That's an interesting choice. I was concerned for a moment. I thought you were going to say snake. I'm better now. <laughs> Thank um, God. Marianne Wieland. Um, a hawk. <laughs> oh, you told me hawk. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> People keep jumping around on my screen and I'm getting confused. Um, Dana Storino, what about you? Um, a turtle because I, I would like my home on my back. Turtle, turtles. Um, Emma Palova. A fox. <laughs> nice. Mackenzie, if you can put your spirit animal in the chat so that. Um, uh, she said, I'd say, say maybe a tiger. That's how she said it. So. Tiger. I like it. Big oh. giddy. Andrew, what about you? Who, who is your spirit animal? A catadon. The catadon is biggest brain, most fun animal in the world. So. Okay. Is that K or a C? Because now I need to go look it up. See. Okay. I will go look it up. I've not heard of such a creature. I will yeah. go look it up. It's the it's common. It's called a, a sperm whale. It has the oh. largest creature well. on the planet, can dive to the near the bottom of the ocean and is incredibly intelligent and of course uh eats eats meat just squid. like squid. <laughs> Mostly squid, correct. Wow. <laughs> if, if you want a fantastic book, anybody that wants a fantastic book, there's a book called Cashalot, and I think it's by Alan Dean Foster. It is a very old book, but Cashalot is an amazing book about a planet given entirely to the whales for what we've done to them. Good for wow. us. We should do that. <laughs> we should actually do that. Okay. Um, for those of you who don't know, my thing is ducks. You guys probably already knew that already. <laughs> okay, here we go. Let's see if I can make the spinny wheel happen. Uh, can everybody see it? Did I get the right screen? Please, pretty yep. please tell me. Okay, good. Because I'm confused tonight and my sound is on. Here we go. Tonight, our first spinny wheels for Gabriel's book, Dark, mm -hmm. and, Dark and Theatrical, and Ruby's book will be the second spin, Trouble with Teamwork. Here we go. Okay, uh, second spin for Ruby's book. Here we go. Congratulations. I'm not going to show the other screen because we're learning late, but you guys know. Send me an email to diana at pagespromotions.com with your mailing address and we will get those books out to you. Please send me your, e your mailing address, even though you think I already have it, because there are days I'm just not that bright. Uh, does anybody have anything, parting words, fun thoughts, comments before we go? Anybody? See, we're all completely mesmerized by what was revealed tonight. We're all processing. I can see it. I think you're all guilty. <laughs> no, no. You think you'd know people after you spent seven to 14 days in a library with them, but I had no idea. <laughs> I think we ought to roll them all into one of those big shipping containers and drop them down to visit Davy Jones, and then we'll all hang out. 
together in the afterward. Are you feeling bitter there, Andrew? Just because somebody murdered you. It does seem a bit extreme. (laughs) Well, hey, you know, sometimes you have to. Anybody else before we go? We're running out of time. Nothing? Okay, awesome. You guys have been great tonight. Thank you, everybody, for expanding our story and helping us move into the last seven days. We're going to have a really good time now. Have a good night, everybody. Good night.